When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're looking at how to get things done in the church and the real concerns that are at hand always. Um, And the difference between different kinds of people in a church or different identities in a church, the Hellenists, the Hebrews, very different identities, all with similar needs. I'm glad you're here. A reading from the sixth chapter of Acts. Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to the task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great signs and wonders among the people. Then some of them, who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, which, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have some really fascinating information about this early Christian church, this church, really the only church that isn't planted is the church in Jerusalem in the way that we think of pretty much every church thereafter. The church in Jerusalem is kind of already there when it starts. Um, All the disciples are there, all the Mary's there, um, other Christians are there. And so they don't really have to start it. It's kind of already already going. Um, but then these really strange things start happening. Um, first of all, they have a crisis. You know, we often say, well, the church only reacts to things when they happen, and we don't, we don't really plan for anything, and we are just reacting all the time. As a, I'm talking about big church, like, the church, the Episcopal church, or whatever church, the other churches there are that you've been part of. And um, the church has always been reactive. Here in the sixth chapter of Acts, the, the church has a crisis. Um, as more uh, non-Jewish people start becoming Christian, and then this other group of Christians start coming in who are Hellenists. Hellas, Hellas, um, is the Greek word for Greece, the Greek word for Greek. Um, We say Greek, they would say Hellas. Um, And so Hellenism is this movement that started with Alexander the Great and his conquests, even though he was Macedonian, he spoke Greek, and spread Greek culture 
around the world, all the way to India, and certainly through the land of the Bible in the first century. Uh, When Alexander the Great dies, there are cities named after him stretching all the way to Afghanistan, named Alexandria. And there's one in North Africa, there's one everywhere. There's even one in Virginia, although that was not founded by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies at around 33 or 34 years old, and he doesn't have an heir necessarily, so he splits his uh, empire four ways. And the general who gets Israel, Palestine, um, the land of the Bible, the land Jesus grows up in, is Seleucus. He's the Seleucid emperor of the Greeks, and his descendants uh, terrorized the Jewish people in the intertestamental period. And a lot of the apocryphal books, the books in our apocrypha, which are set in the Old Testament times before Jesus, take place as these awful Greek generals like Antiochus Epiphanes and others desecrate the temple. One of them sacrifices a pig on the altar of God, desecrating the temple, and causes all sorts of troubles that eventually result in the Maccabean Rebellion. Um, The origins of the holiday of Hanukkah come from this. And then the Greeks are so bad, the Seleucids are so bad, um, and they also fight with the Ptolemies. The general named Ptolemy gets Egypt, North Africa, uh, from whom Cleopatra the Sixth, or Cleopatra as we know her in pop culture, is descended from the Ptolemies. She's Greek and Egyptian. Um, And so we have this kind of battleground of the land of of Jesus and the Old Testament uh, between the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south, constantly fighting, constantly bickering with each other. Um, But what happens with this spread of Greek culture in the world of the Jewish world, and also as Jews are traveling as merchants and other Um, doing other jobs around the Roman Empire and Greek Empire, they start to learn Greek and start to become fascinated with Greek culture. And they start reading Greek philosophy like Plato and Socrates. And so when when the New Testament is written, it is written in what language? Does anybody know the language the New Testament is written in? I've kind of given it away. In Greek. That's right. It's in Greek. Thank you, Paula. Uh, and so, you know, our, the Christian world, the Christian theology that we have is just as much a part of the Greek tradition as it is the Hebrew tradition of the world of the Bible. Um, Deramade McCullough makes this very clear in his very thick book, 3,000 Years of Church History, um, that it is the Greek thought and ethos and language that is just as influential as the uh, Jewish world of the Old Testament on Christianity. And so this, this ha- there are a number of Jewish people in the world of Jesus and the New Testament who become Greek culturally. They're called Hellenists. They compete in the Greek games, like the Olympics. Um, they sometimes don't get circumcised or try to reverse their circumcision so they can compete in the Greek games. They speak Greek. Jesus certainly was one of these Greek-speaking Jewish people in the first century. He um, spoke Greek and he talked in Greek. 
most likely the trial that happens with Pilate in the um, in Jerusalem before his death happened in Greek, as Pilate would have likely have spoken Greek as well. Um, maybe the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus in John is also in Greek, as it would work linguistically a lot better that way. And the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, so Greek is the language of the day, and it is a language that Jesus spoke and worked in and thought in. Uh, so, but in the as the early churches formed, these Hellenistic Jewish people who become Christians, there's several leaps of <laughs> culture going on here, but, you know, we, we also live in Texas. We are, um, I'm a white American, um, predominantly English speaker, and yet I am deeply influenced by Mexican culture and Tex-Mex culture and Hispanic culture that's around me when it comes to food, when it comes to words I know and concepts I think about. And, um, and that's just from living in Texas. Uh, we, we, um, we certainly absorb a lot more of our, the culture around us and the world and Jesus would have too. So we have people with multiple identities in the New Testament. And there is, in the church, this split starts happening with these Hellenistic Jews. They are Greek-speaking Jews, Greek culture Jews who are now Christians. And then we have this group of very Jewish, Hebrew, Aramaic Jews who are very loyal to the traditions of Moses. Unlike some of the Hellenistic uh, Jews, they tend to be more strict about keeping the law of Moses in, in the, as they understand it. These would be um, often Pharisees or Sadducees we meet in the Gospels. But they become Christians, and they start to have a problem. As they are sharing food with the widows um, that, that, are, that are in the church, these are widows who are being cared for by the church. They are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. That means the early church in the book, in Acts chapter 6, that's as far as we've gotten, they are distributing food to widows in their church every single day. That's kind of the main thing that they're doing in this church. Pretty amazing stuff when we think about it. Um, and we think about what is the mission of the church? What kind of things the church should be doing? Well, here in Acts chapter 6, they're doing this every day. They get together the food that they're going to share with the widows in the church who, who are unable to um, procure food in any other way. And they do this. Um, they are, but these uh, Hellenistic or Greek culture widows are being uh, neglected in the daily distribution. Um, my own dear father, who is... Uh, grew up in the world of the King James Bible, at dinner time would often say if he didn't get something passed to him, I, I was neglected in the daily distribution. <laughs> he qu quoting from this chapter of Acts, and that line has always stuck with me. And I think I say it sometimes today, but nobody gets it. Nobody's reading Acts chapter 6 in the King James anymore. So the early, the, the apostles get together. This is such a big problem that the 12 apostles meet in a church council. Um, if we often think that some of the problems we have in the church are kind of petty and pedestrian and not that important, um, when it comes to how to care for vulnerable people, 
Um, that's a high priority. So they, they get together and they say it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. These are the 12 apostles saying this. It's not right for them to neglect the study of the word of God, the preaching and teaching of the word of God, to wait on tables. And this is tricky because, you know, we often talk about servant leadership in the church, and um, certainly my job is partly as a waiter of Holy Communion. And as a church planter, I'm also coordinating food and things like that quite often. Um, And yet these 12 apostles make it very clear that um, they are not to neglect the Word of God. When we focus too much on waiting on tables as clergy, we neglect the Word of God. Um, As John Piper said many years ago, if you can do all your praying, dear pastor, uh, while you're driving in your car on the way to the hospital, um, you know, (laughs) that's... that's, um, that's probably not something you need to stop waiting tables to do. Um, The responsibility of studying and teaching and sharing is a responsibility that the apostles took very seriously. And so they tell the Jewish or the Hellenistic widows to choose their own uh, ministers. He says, um, select among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom to appoint to this task. And their main job, their only job, is to care for these widows who are Hellenistic. Um, that um, That they are being neglected by the larger community. They choose Stephen first. We'll see him in a few chat in a few verses ahead, our first martyr. And all the guys they choose, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. And Nicholas is a proselyte of Antioch. So Nicholas is a Gentile, a pagan, who converted to Judaism, but he's of Greek origin, converted to Judaism, and now he's converted to Christianity. But again, when we talk about conversion at this point in church history, nobody is converting. They don't think of themselves as converting to Christianity because Christianity really isn't a religion yet. It's a Jewish, it's a movement within Judaism to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But all of these guys that they choose are Greek. They have Greek names. So they have chosen indigenous leadership for the kind of people that they're going to serve. Um, And it's true in the church today. If you want to get to reach a certain population, you need leaders who are part of that population. Um, we have, the church has recognized this down through history, um, that the, church, the, the people in the church that are coming to a church and being part of the community need to have leadership that represents them, however they identify. And this is hard because we identify in multiple ways as Americans. Obviously, it's good to have an American be in a minister at an American church. Um, But that can mean a lot of different things. We are not all one as Americans. We're not all the same. And so even in the United States, we need a variety of leaders who can address a variety of different people. And that's true of the church today. But the word of God continues to spread. The word of God continues to spread. And these guys that were picked just to distribute food 
to widows. That's the only reason they were chosen. They were of good character and those kinds of things. Um, they end up doing a lot of other stuff. They start evangelizing. They start preaching. They start teaching. They even baptize. They're doing all kinds of stuff um, to serve God. And it's not coming out of their role as bread distributors. It's coming out of their baptism and their identity with Jesus Christ. Um, so we see that the apostles' insistence that everybody kind of has their focus um, is actually doesn't happen. These people they ordain as deacons um, go and do well beyond what their original purpose was because that's where the Holy Spirit was going. The Holy Spirit is always moving beyond the scope of work and the responsibilities that are outlined in the contract. Um, certainly Jesus' ministry was that way. And so Stephen and Philip and these others have a similar ministry to Jesus because Jesus did come as a servant to all. So whenever the apostles are like, we can't wait tables, um, I think it's included in the text to say that um, maybe, maybe that wasn't always the main, should have been the main focus of those apostles. Um, the main focus was to get the job done, that these, this large number of, of Hellenistic widows needed food and they needed people to be able to distribute it. But in the going, in the doing of that, the word of God continued to spread. Whenever somebody does something for the church, whether you're moving chairs or you're setting up snacks or you're, whatever you're doing, um, the real job there is sharing the word of God, which is really ultimately the love of God. The love of God is shared. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have a little job that is kind of stressing me out, that's out of the scope of what I went to seminary for, I can get a little um, preoccupied with that and forget that ultimately the, the real job that I'm doing is learning how to love and learning how to study the scriptures in a deeper way, understand the love of Jesus that I met meet in the scriptures that shows me how to love sa sacrificially and wholly and fully as God has loved us. Amen. It is one of my all-time favorite saints for today. Irenaeus of Lyon. Irenaeus. Um, his name means peaceful one. There is considerable doubt about the year of Irenaeus' birth. I guess it doesn't matter that much. Although... The estimates vary from the year 97 to 160. So, um, I don't know. It's something maybe a doctor would like to know or someone that's um, trying to figure out if he's um, within 63 years of uh, margin for error. According to tradition, he learned of the Christian faith in Ephesus at the feet of Polycarp, who in turn had known the Apostle John the Evangelist. So we have this early church tradition of Polycarp, who was a martyr, knowing the Apostle John and being his disciple, 
and then Irenaeus knowing Polycarp, which is pretty cool when you think of how um, even 150 years after Jesus is born, uh, or actually more than 150, you have people who knew people who knew Jesus. Some years before 177, probably when Irenaeus was still a teenager, he carried the tradition of Christianity to uh, Lyon in southern France. The In the year 177, there was great hardship to the mission in Gaul, or France. Persecution broke out, and theological divisions within the fledgling Christian community threatened to engulf the church. Irenaeus, by now a priest, was sent to Rome to mediate the dispute regarding Montanism, which the Bishop of Rome, Eleutherius, seemed to embrace. While Irenaeus was on this mission, the aged Bishop of Lyon, Pothinus died in prison during a local persecution. When Irenaeus returned to Lyon, he was elected bishop to succeed Pothinus. So the church that he grew up in was a church full of controversy, full of disagreement, full of persecution, being having the bishop of the city m- murdered in prison, um, after a persecution, during a persecution. Irenaeus' enduring fame rests mainly on a large treatise entitled The Refutation and Overthrow of Gnosis, falsely so-called, usually shortened to Against Heresies. In our class on Sunday, we talked about how Irenaeus kind of coined the term heresy as well as the term Catholic to refer to the church universal. In it, Irenaeus describes the major Gnostic systems thoroughly, clearly, and often with biting humor. It is one of our chief sources of knowledge about Gnosticism. He also makes a case for Orthodox Christianity, which has become a classic resting heavily on Scripture and on continuity between the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of bishops generation after generation. Against the Gnostics who despised the flesh and exalted the spirit, He stressed two doctrines, that of creation being good and that of the resurrection of the body. He famously wrote that the glory of God is a human being fully alive, and full human life consists in the vision of God. A late and uncertain tradition claims that he suffered martyrdom around the year 202. But Irenaeus is really important for the development of the Christian faith in the early years, how he um, did battle with those who he disagreed with verbally. Um, again, this is before the church has a lot of political power, so these are verbal and written debates. Um, but that line, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. So when you are fully alive and you're feeling that, um, you are experiencing the glory of God. So I invite you into that today to Uh, Experience the glory of God by being fully alive, aware of your life, aware of being alive. Um, And I pray that that will bring the glory of God closer to you with all that love. Almighty God, who strengthened your servant Irenaeus to defend thy truth against every blast of vain doctrine, keep us, we pray, steadfast in your true religion 
that in constancy and peace we may walk in the ways that lead to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We pray a colic for mission. O God, you've made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold, pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.